part of that. Okay, Rav Tali Horowitz is on his way. <coughs> so, <coughs> as Hashem, we'd like to get started. I'd like to begin by thanking the many people in Coventry who helped put this event together. There's many names that I could mention, but I would like to specifically thank of Shimon Freeman and of Aaron Frankel for all the work that they have put in. I would also like to take this opportunity to thank Zevi Woolman of LSJ, who's a resident of Baltimore, who reached out to me shortly before Yom Kippur and offered his help in any way possible to be able to allow us to take this initiative that we began to the next level. I would also like to thank Naftali Horowitz for making the time to come here tonight. We originally asked that it should be either on a Monday or Tuesday night, either two nights ago or last night, but I was told that being that Rav Naftali made a bar mitzvah last night, it wasn't shayach. So in between the dinner and the kiddush, assuming it fits in his budget, that there's a kiddush, um, he managed to come down here to take out time from his busy schedule to be a part of our project. Just a number of minutes and what we're trying to accomplish here tonight. It's not a secret, as we mentioned earlier, that the Nisayin Ador, the Nisayin that we deal with as a generation, Bichlal, and our community is not excluded from it, Bifrat, is dealing with an idea that the money we spend and the money we flash is ultimately what we feel as a definition of who we are. And unfortunately for many, this leads to difficulties in life, whether it's showing bias, sleeping at night, kina, machloikis, doing things in business that we wouldn't otherwise do. And unfortunately, what happens as a community, being that we're all so competitive, and being that we have a stolz to who we are, it begins to develop a rat race, which starts by a few people, expands to many, and ultimately puts on a pressure for each individual. And what has come clear in the last two months or so, as the Rav and myself began to address this issue, is that there's a tremendous chukka mitzad da'olam as individuals to figure out a way to get out of this mess. To figure out a way 
to be able to live in Menuch Sanefesh. And the Maiso, our attempt tonight is to take the community down a path where we no longer sit around, whether it's in the back of shul after davening or by a kiddush or wherever else, and discuss ki'ilu, gashmias, and expenditures, is it, but to change the conversation to an idea of A, I live within my means, B, I have a budget, I have a system, and C, we can all live in harmony together. Just to be ma'ir da'ilam, HaKadosh Baruch Hu Achmav gives us different opportunities in life where we're part of a Hisarius. But as the Bali Musa say, a Hisarius is a spark. And if we don't have the ability to take the spark to the next level, unfortunately we lose it. Case in point, Shmini Atzeres, Yisrael, suffered a tremendous Eistzorah. And it's not that much in the distant memory, the Hisarius that existed. Every single person had a tremendous Hisarius. And we're mere three weeks and three days later, and it all, unfortunately, almost evaporated by most people. But there were those talking about our Kihilo who took the Hisarius, took a Chavusa, and made a Seder. And for them, although the Hisarius may not be there, but Lemaisa, the actions from the Hisarius, not only are there today, but Be'ezus Hashem will be there in a year, five years, and ten years. We're embarking on a project tonight. It's going to be Hisarius for every person here. But we have to realize, if we're going to let, walk out of this room and say, great speech, that was unbelievable, it's going to last maybe a day, maybe a week, and maybe a month. But then we'll be back to where we started. Unless we stop and we make a cheshven, what am I doing? Where am I going? What's important to me in life? Within a short time, the Sirius will be gone. And that's why, as part of tonight's event, we have Rabbi Taylor in the back, who's here to sign up the Olam as part of budgeting classes to meet professional financial advisors, to sit with couples, to either A, figure out a plan of how to budget for the future. But even many people may say, I'm not disciplined enough to be able to budget and to have a budget sheet and to make cheshbonus. But if every person in this room could sit down with a financial planner and ask a simple question, how much of my yearly budget is necessities and how much of my yearly budget is unnecessary expenditures, or maybe necessary, may not, extra expenditures. 
And if I took 20,000, 30,000 of those extra expenditures and I put it away, what would happen in five years? And every person, we could all use a wake-up call. And I urge the Olam, take advantage. Sit down with somebody. Make a cheshben anefesh. Because in five years, whether it's a down payment for a house, whether it's whatever other things a person would like, whether it's to pay for bar mitzvahs, chasanas, or because the Olam is young and many of you haven't started paying tuition, haven't started paying large mortgages, use it for a rainy day fund so you should be able to live with Menuchas HaNefesh and to make a chesven. Is it really worth $50,000, $55,000 a year that I'm spending currently on extra expenditures? Is that worth it? Or maybe I should take a use it for the future in some way or capacity. And therefore, as I mentioned, if we're not going to do something concrete, it will change, it will last a week, a month. We have to make changes. We have to do something concrete. Do it for yourself, do it for your wife, do it for your children, and most important, do it for the community. If we can begin an, a, a, an avira, if we can begin that the standard talk, the standard acceptance, the standard person that's looked up to is somebody who lives responsibly. If that could be the talk, if that could be the aver of our community, how much happier every one of us would be. At this time, I would like to ask Avtali Horowitz to share with us a few words. Thank you. Nice to see that something in Lakewood hasn't changed. Shlomo Melech begins Kehelis with the with the words Ani Kehelis Ayisi Melech Biyushalayim. Many years ago, I uh, was attending a lecture from a Wall Street guru, and he said that. A successful lecture begins by establishing credibility. Because why should anybody want to hear anything that anybody has to say, especially when those things perhaps are going to be of you to think and live your life differently. Shleim HaMelech, as I'll say before he shares the words of Kehelis, he says, let me tell you who I am. The word Kehelis comes from the word gathering. I've spent my life gathering information. And uh, I'm Ben David, so I come from a generation of people who do this. And I was a Melech B'Yushalayim. I had access. I had access to people, experiences. So, not Altsgaiva, but I know what I'm talking about. So, you might want to hear what I have to say. I'll start by establishing credibility. I lived in Lakewood. I grew up poor. I was in the wannabe category. When I first moved to Flatbush, 
years ago. I took my wife out on a walk. There was a house on East 8th Street between Avenue J and K with a green door and beautiful pillars. It was a mansion. And I said to my wife, Shafala, one day I'm going to build you that house. I had that aspiration. I grew up with nothing. And I just wanted to prove to myself that I can have something. And then naturally I wanted to make sure the world knows about it. Here I am today. I do not have that house. I said this once in a Shabbos speech in a Syrian shul. And the owner of the house was in the audience. He came running up to me after and he says, Rabbi, that's my house. I said, wow. He goes, you must come over. You think it's beautiful from the outside. You should see the inside. And he obviously did not get the point. And I said, one day, Jack, one day. I still meet him on the street all the time. He goes, Rabbi, when are you coming over? I want to show you my house. So somehow, between then and now, something changed. Something changed. I always tell people, drive down my block. I'll tell you which block I live on. If you can guess which house is mine, I'll take you out for lunch. Nobody's guessed which house is mine. Baruch Hashem, I can afford to build that house. Baruch Hashem, I have absolutely no desire to build that house. So what changed? Did I sit in Kyle? For 30 years, that I go to Musas Dharam four times a day to understand the meaning of life? The answer is yes, but that's actually not not really what happened. (coughs) My wife saw a copy of the flyer and she was very insulted that I was given the title Mr. And she said, do they know that you have smicha and you give shurim seven times a week? I said, who cares? I say, I actually prefer the word mister on that thing. Because I'm not here as a rabbi. I'm not here to give you musr. I'm not here to teach you the meaning of life and the detriments of Gashmias on your neshama. I'm not here to preach Chayvus Levavas, Shara Precious to you. You have a wonderful rabbi to do that. I stand here as Mr. Naftali Harowitz. To teach you why you shouldn't want it even if you don't daven with minion three times a day. To teach you from the experiences that I experienced personally and the fact that I oversee billions of dollars on behalf of some of the wealthiest families in the world. From the inside, I will tell you Why, when you walk out of this room, you should rethink whether or not you even want that lifestyle that we all hope and dream for one day, that house with the pillars and the green green doors. And if, Be'ezus Hashem, you are successful and you do make a lot of money, you will be much happier 
If you are the one that people point to and say, Azoi, this is the way a Gvir should live. Not to get sucked into the insanity of what's going on today. It's mamish, unbelievable. People have lost their minds. Again, nothing to do with Ruchnius. I'm talking about living a happy, stable life where you bring up normal children who know what's important in life and what's not. My aim in coming here tonight with the zero time that I have is to hopefully elevate a community of young people who have still not sold their souls to the devil. I've spoken in many communities. And unfortunately, sometimes when people are already in it and they have so much invested in it and their whole self-esteem is built around what's in their driveway or what goes up on their property or what other people think they have, whether they have it or not, it's very difficult for them when they're that invested in that self-image to change. But I can assure you that if you start early enough and you see it for what it is, you will embrace this type of a lifestyle. So I started making money, Baruch Hashem. It's no secret that people on Wall Street make money. I started making a lot of it, more than I could spend. And what do you do with that? You go sugar, right? And then the Abishta did me a humongous favor. The big crash of 2008 happened. And I watched, there was a day where I watched $97 million evaporate from my book of business in under an hour. Staggering, absolutely staggering. When 2008 hit, I was managing a billion dollars. When it was over, I was managing 540 million. Unbelievable. There was a conversation that I had with somebody who walked into my office which I attribute to be one of the things that started to change my life. He was a managing director. He walked into my office, he sat down, he goes, I don't know what I'm gonna do. I go, what's the matter? He says, I can't live off what I'm gonna make this year if the market doesn't rebound. I said to him, I don't understand. I said, based on what I understand, no, you probably were making three to four million dollars. He goes, yes, I was. I said, so doing the calculations, you're probably gonna be making between 1.8 and 2.2. He goes, yeah. And he goes, I said, and? He goes, I can't live off that. At that moment, this man was sitting, he was literally worried out of his mind. And he looked at me and he says, what are you gonna do? I said, when I got to Wall Street, I was earning $180,000 a year. I had four children. 
I now have five. I figure 200, I'll be fine. The market has to drop 92% for me to hit that number. I'll be okay. And at that moment, I stopped and realized that it's possible for a person to be earning $4 million and then only be earning $2.2 million and to be as worried as the Meshulach that just got off the plane from Yerushalayim to collect for his daughter's wedding. It's possible to earn $2.2 million and have so run your life amok that you are now an Oni Ve'evyon in your mind and you feel that way. Because you understand that you're only as wealthy as you feel. And I started to realize what it was doing to my colleagues and what it was doing to my clients. Because when you get into my field and you get to know people and you get to see the problems that they have inside of their lives, the, the, the divorces, the, the, the misery, the infighting, Again, I'm not saying that that's what money always translates to. But if that's the focal point of your life, I realized it's not the kind of life that I want. And then, then yes, I started learning because I knew that if I'm, going to be, if I'm going to be in this business that I'm in, I have to figure out a way how to immunize myself from the disease that I would be exposing myself to every single day. That's where my knowledge comes from. I'm not a wannabe who's telling you don't want to be because we'll probably never get there. I'm way past that. I was a wannabe. And now, Baruch Hashem, I can do whatever I want. I'm here to tell you why I don't. I'm here to tell you why you should Be'ezus Hashem become a big veer, but you should do it for the right reasons. And I'm also going to tell you some of the things that if you do them too early, you will probably never become whatever it is that you want to become. Let's start with Hanukkah number one, which is absolutely positively obvious. We live in the wealthiest society since the beginning of the creation of this world. And let's forget the word, let's talk about Klai Yisrael. I spoke about this at the Gooden Convention. A hundred people came up to me. I never thought about it. Think about it for a second. There is more wealth inside the Jewish community than there's ever been in history, cumulatively. That means you add up all the money we had till now. I think about this every day. I earn more in one month than my father used to earn for 10 years. And I'm not the only one. We have more conveniences, the best healthcare system, we got used to things our parents didn't even dream of. I remember my father's Zechernel of Racha getting his first car with electric windows. I'm not 80. My father couldn't afford electric windows. We always had to roll down. When he was 70 years old, he was able to get his first car with the best day of his life. He came home from the auction. He called me up and says, you have to see this. 
I finally got electric windows. Electric windows? You don't even know what a roll-down window looks like. Talk to people from prior generations. The average life now was 52 years old. Today we're living into our 90s. We have everything. When I grew up, there was schmelz herring and pickled herring. Today we have entire sections dedicated to herring. Everything, bread, you name it, sugar beyond, fine. We have luxuries, we have materialism beyond, conveniences. So let me ask you a simple question. Why is it impossible to get an appointment with a therapist? I'll show you my text messages. I'm connected to the top therapists. Everybody wants my poll to get them in with somebody. Why is Prozac flying off the shelves? Why is anxiety and pressure and drug use and everything else rampant? We should be the happiest generation in history. No? Isn't that what it's all supposed to equal up to? Money equals happiness. Right? We should all be walking around. It's like it's a great life. Uh, you know the truth. You know the truth. My Zaydis in Poland lived through a week and they weren't killed in a program. And that was a successful week and they were happy. Go to Meisharim, look at the people, how they live. They're the happiest people in the world. My Chaveirim over there tell me, Ich weiß nicht, wo du weinst in Amerika, ich geh da und ich werde depressed. What's wrong with us? No, really. Do you ever stop and think? Because we're chasing something. For what reason? At the end of the day, you're going to be miserable. Will you chase it? Does it make sense to live your life with stress and anxiety and misery? For what reason? It has no shot. Let's take that as a hanocha. And if you think that you have a different theory than what I come to lead you to, Adarabah, I'm open for a spirited debate. But if you look at the line of wealth in the world, by the way, America is the most anxious, depressed country. And we happen to be the wealthiest. No, it's maybe not that. Maybe it's because we drink the most Coke. Okay, I'm listening to your theory. But Adarabba. But to me, a rational person, it makes no sense to me that I should build my life around something that's going to make me unhappy. It makes no sense. Yen is Almanian that I'm happy when I'm miserable. Yen is Almanian that I'm really okay when I don't have a minute's time, when I can't have a, a, a thought for two more than two seconds before something else pulls me down, when there's a pit in my stomach about how I'm going to pay for this or how I'm going to... Who needs this? Why are we doing it? Let's not kid ourselves. Because someone else is. That's it. Because if you lived on an island, and everybody on that island had nothing but a hut, a mud hut, and drove a mule, and you drove a Ford Taurus, all of us show them. They still make that car anymore, do they? Yeah. You had a rusty Ford Taurus. 
Would you be happy? Honestly. Raise your hand if you would not be happy. Everybody drives a mule. You, they live in a mud hut. You have a straw hut. You drive a rusty Ford Taurus. You have somebody who brings you water every day. And that's the universe within you live, with which you live. Would you be happy? You'd be the happiest guy in the island. In economics, it's called relative wealth. You are relatively the wealthiest person. And you take that same person and you drop them into Borough Park or Lakewood. And now all of a sudden, my car's a piece of garbage. My house is terrible. My wife looks like she's wearing garbage rags. My kids, Hashem Yerachem. And now you went from happy to miserable. Welcome to America. You're driving down the highway, you have a perfectly good phone in your pocket until you see the billboard. And the billboard shows you the new iPhone 649 XY5 with seven cameras that all of a sudden, Hashem Yerachim, I thought I had a camera, a piece of garbage. Now I must get a new camera with a folding screen. Think about it. You were happy a minute ago. What happened? Somebody else has something. Now, huh, I'm no longer happy. You know who was the first person to uh, realize this? Adam Mechava. Adam Gemara says, What does Gemara say? Did you eat from the tree that I told you not to eat from? Well, what? Says the Vilna Goyen. Again, not Tyra. I would say this to a guy. I'm serious. Think about it. What is Haman's favorite, famous line? Yeah. Haman had everything. House, mansion, everything in the world. What happened? One little Jewish rabbi refuses to bow. That's it. Everything I have is worthless because a Jewish rabbi refused to bow to me. Is he insane? The guy's out of his rocker? Yeah? What happened? All the Mechavah, they're in Gan Eden. Wow, amazing. Adam Mechavah, listen, Shefalach, you can have everything here. You see this? This, this, It's unbelievable. It's like Disneyland. There's one thing you can't have. That tree. That's it, that tree. So the Satan comes, says, (laughs) you see all that? It's garbage. That tree is what you must have. You don't have that tree. Hamit. So, 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 so what happened? I have nothing. I have nothing if I don't have a Range Rover in my driveway. It's not, I have nothing. I'm not Mishan Ani If I don't have that Range Rover, I'm not Ani. Because somebody else has it and I don't have it. Finished. If he didn't have it and he didn't know about it and I never saw one, then I wouldn't be think about it. But now, everything goes to Pat. I must have it. Hamina hates. Why would you have eaten from one stupid tree when I gave you the whole Gan Eden? That's America, Rabbi Isai. That's what we're living in. 
That's marketing. We call it marketing. To show you that if you don't look that way, you don't drive that, and you don't have that in your, in your pocket, or you didn't go to this Meshuggah destination, then you do not have a life. And if you keep buying into that, no wonder you need Prozac and who knows what else. Because you're absolutely miserable. Who wants to live life like Haman? Is there anything irrational about that? It makes total sense. Anybody in the world could understand it. If you're happy, it means you're happy with what you have. And if you're not happy and you're anxious, it's because you set your sight on something that you do not yet have and you convince yourself that you need. And we're doing this because of peer pressure. Because somebody has a low self-esteem and somebody decides that he made a few dollars and everybody in the whole entire universe should know about it. Or he has absolutely nothing else that he feels good about except whatever it is he's driving at the time. And we're all following him. I told Rabbi Gortzman on the phone. This happened a few weeks ago in Landau's. You all know what Landau's is, right? It's the only place in the world that's more famous than the Coventry Square Clubhouse. I'm davening Shachris. There's two people by the bima. Hashem put this for me because he knew I was going to be speaking here tonight. One was a Mishol Chemer Yisrael who came out to after davening and he's marrying off his daughter and he eats 50,000 shekel. The other one's a guy who lives in my neighborhood who, let's just say, likes to let people know that he wants you to believe that he has money. He's wearing a Rolex. <clears throat> I love watches, so I could tell you exactly the model. It was a rose gold sky dweller with a rubber strap. Retail $42,000. He's standing by the Beamer. For some reason, I, I can't explain it. It, it, it. When he wears his watch on his left hand, when he's not wearing tefillin, his left sleeve gets shorter. And then when he moves it to his right hand, when he is wearing tefillin, his right sleeve gets shorter. I, I, I'm trying, I, I have some, some sci- scientists trying to figure out how this happens, but somehow there's a correlation between his watch and how short his sleeve gets. If any of you have a theory, come over to me later and tell me. So he's standing at the bima like this. And on the other side of the bima is the Meshulach who came over to me after he needs 50,000 check. And the following thought occurred to me. Who's the biggest Shnara? When I was a child, I was Zaychet to hear of Shalom Shadwan one time. And he said that when he was back in Lita, he was going to Bismedrish one day with his Gemara. I'll never forget he told the story. I think I was nine or ten years old when I heard him tell it. He's going to Bismedrish and he has Gemara. And he walked by a a couple of secular Yidin. And they said to him, Yingale! Isn't euch einel von de Schnorris? Anyone not speak Yiddish? We're good? Little boy, you're also from one of the Schnorris. Wonderful. So Rav Shalom stopped and he said to him, Wer's aggressor de Schnorris? Who's the biggest Schnorris? Someone who Schnorris a few dollars? 
someone who snores luft from the Abishta. You are snoring your next breath. And he walked away. Who's the biggest snorer? Somebody who needs 50,000 shekel to make a wedding? Or somebody who needs every single person in this room to know that he's wearing a Rolex Skydweller? I'm asking you, who is a bigger schnorrer? Someone who goes around and says, can I have a dollar for my daughter's wedding? Or someone says, please, look at me. Notice me. I'm rich. Do you know that? Hey, do you know it? Do you know it? I want you to know it too. Everybody in the room must know it. Why? Because I have this big hole inside of me. It's called lack of self-esteem. And I need you to fill it up for me so I can feel something about myself. Please. The last thing I want is you not to know that this is an expensive watch. So if you don't, I'll make sure to tell you. My Mechutten Rabbi Waxman, I have this story in my book. It's one of my favorite stories. He was flying to Eretz Yisrael. Not to Eretz Yisrael, no, no. He was flying to England. And he was sitting, he sits business class because he sleeps and he gets off the plane and the Kahila pays for it and it's fine. He's sitting next to an Arab sheik. I heard the story from him. And they started talking. A Jewish rabbi, Arab sheik, shine. And the Arab sheik tells him, Rabbi, I just want you to know, I, don't, I never fly commercial airlines. I have a private jet. It's in for repair. Okay, very nice, very nice. Fifteen minutes later, Rabbi, I don't know if I told you, but I never fly commercial. I have a private jet. It's in for repairs. Three times, the Arab sheik kept telling him. He said, could you imagine an Arab sheik can't live with himself if some rabbi in Monsi, who will never see again, walks around thinking that he flies business on a commercial jet. Is there a bigger schnorrer than that? So I had this observation when I was looking at these two people. And I said, he'll get his 50,000 shekel. He'll never get what he needs. He's looking in the wrong places. That's peer pressure. You're following somebody who's a schnorrer. Because there's only one reason why a person who lives in a community with people who do not have, because they've been a tyrant, and will never have some of them what they have, would want other people to feel less about themselves by the way they live. When I made my first bar mitzvah, not the one I made last night, I had first started making real money. And I made an affair the way Kedosvikidin in those days, the Asagas were completely different. But I made an affair. Azoi Yeah, I could, right? Why not? How often do you make a simcha? All the rationalizations. And I walked around and I saw my chaverim, 80% of them were still learning, or they were B'nai Torah, or they were Abayim. And all of a sudden it hit me what am I doing? What am I, crazy? How do they feel? What am I, a, 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 I want to hurt people? I'm a Russia? 
How are their wives feeling that they'll never be able to afford such a simcha? Their husband will never be able to. What am I doing? I remember I came home. I literally I was sick the whole night. I told my wife, "We're never going to do this again." Why would a person do that? Why would a person want to hurt his next door neighbor who he knows can't afford it, doesn't even have a job? During COVID, my wife's minivan lease came up. Half my block didn't have jobs. They all lost their jobs. They were lining up in the yeshiva to get boxes of food. How could you lease a minivan when people are dying and they, they, they can't get their next breath? Where's our sensitivity? Are we crazy? We want to be part of that society. We want to be one of those people. And really, seriously, most of us deep down, we think there's this magic club of Gvirim and they have a happy, amazing life. And who doesn't want to get into that room? Well, Chevra, I was in that room and I'm so far from it, it's not even funny. I fly coach. C-O-A-C-H. When J.P. Morgan used to fly me across the country to speak, I flew coach because I don't want to sit in first class. Because I want to be able to stand in front of a room and say, I fly coach. I can afford private, alligator Sachen. Who wants it? Build self-esteem on real things. Of course you should become a Gavir. Of course you should make money. Kai Yisrael needs Gavirim. We need. Kailim have to be supported. But don't sell your soul to the devil. Don't even have the aspiration to. Because I'm telling you, from somebody who's in that room, it's not pretty. It's much prettier where you are right now. And I can assure you that one day, anybody that hears what I'm saying, will look back and say, it's the best advice I ever got. Check out of the system. Keep working. Keep driving. Keep striving. But ha keep your head on straight. Don't upgrade your life in ways that you shouldn't. And you're young enough not to fall into that trap. Piazetzner writes, That if a person would experience the delicious taste of withholding, he would become addicted to it. We think that giving ourselves what we want and what others have or others convinced us that we need is going to make us happy. The reality is, what it is, is it's negating self, you're, you're, you're negating your free will. I'm not doing it because I truly want to. I'm not doing it because I truly believe in it. I'm doing it because somebody else. And when a person says no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I don't need a new minivan in the middle of COVID. As I'm going to share you an example in a minute, I bought a minivan at auction. Yes, a minivan at auction. Somebody who has my position at J.P. Morgan at the time, allowed his wife, she did not call the domestic uh, um, abuse hotline, to drive a 2016 Honda Odyssey in 2020. 
That's four years old. That's a loisa say in the Torah. Thou shalt not drive a car past three years when the lease is up. Yeah. And I'm going to give you the numbers in a second. It was such an incredible decision that we made that we don't care. Period. When you step out of the herd, because let's put it this way. The herd is where the average person is going to be. There's going to be people who rise above it. And they're going to say, no. Right? They're the people we actually respect. They're the people we actually look up to. They didn't sell out. We really want to be like them. Maybe we don't have the kaychas and to be like them. But don't we look up to these people? Don't we look up to such people? We do. But when you do that, and when you actually make that choice, you have this incredible feeling that you took back your life from society. That you took back your life from the devil. That you now own your life. And that nobody dictates what you do or don't do. And that your decisions are not, do not revolve around what other people think of your decisions. Or what other people think of you, period. Because you just don't care. Because you know that that's not a way to live your life. That, the Piyasetzda says, gives a person such an incredible feeling. You reveal who you truly are. And your neshama and your nefesh is able to soar above. Well, until now, it was being weighed down by the influences of everything around you. I have to tell you, it's the greatest way to live. It's the greatest way to live to just say, I don't need that. I can afford it, but I don't need it. I can afford it, but it won't make me happy. I can afford it, but it will hurt somebody else. I can afford it, but I don't want everybody in the room to have to get into a new rat race because I raised the bar. I don't want to be that person. I don't want to be a person that raises the bar and puts stress on everybody else. I want to be a person that lowers the bar so that somebody else could say, you know what, if he could make a chasana with a one-man band, so can I. I make my chasana with one-man bands. Yeah. I get Guess what? People still want to be mishadik with me. It's amazing. It's a miracle. My wife drove a used minivan and I still have people that want to be mishadik with me. Let's talk about finance for a second. I called up a relative of mine in preparation for this class. I wanted to get a new sense of the realities. And I told him, I said, I saw that you're driving a new Honda Odyssey. He goes, yeah. It's a uh, touring edition. I said, What's it costing you? He goes, $680 a month. I said, no, it's not. He goes, oh, yes, it is. I said, when did you get the lease? He goes, three months ago. I said, you got a $680 a month lease on a Honda Odyssey Touring Edition. He goes, yeah, sure. I go, how much money did you put down? <laughs> oh, $6,000. Oh, so you're paying $849 a month. What? Yeah. Well, if you want to look at it that way, is there another way to look at it? Have you any ever put down money on a van and then convince yourself that you're paying less for the van every month? You know how many thousands of people do this? 
I put down $6,000. That money was like, I never had it. All of a sudden, it's gone. And now, I only pay $680. I actually tell people in shul, you wouldn't believe I have a $680 lease. Wow, are you serious? Yeah, that was unbelievable. He's paying $849 a month. Okay, that's what a Honda Odyssey costs, correct? Anyone else have an Honda Odyssey touring edition? Or not? Doesn't matter. Let me give you numbers so I can teach you how insane this is when you actually focus on the numbers. I'm just using one example, the Honda Odyssey. All right, so I did the numbers. I compared driving a Honda Odyssey, not touring, regular leather seats, EXL, $800 a month, okay? And I'm comparing it to the person who drives my wife's 2016 Honda Odyssey, which my wife drove for three years. My son is now driving it already a year. It has 67,000 or 69,000 miles on it. It's got a good five years left. So I figured this car is going to be okay for nine years, for sure. And then I'm not even giving it any resale value whatsoever. It's worthless at the end of the nine years, right? Which is unrealistic, but I want to, I want to make it. I'm also giving you $1,500 a year of excess cost because, you know, it's not a brand new car. And as a financial person, I'm figuring the person did this at the age of 27. So from 27 to 36, he's dri- one guy's driving the Honda Odyssey EXL. I'm also assuming that the price doesn't go up over those nine years. So you're rolling your next lease into a next lease because you need three leases here, right, Kevra? The chances that a Honda Odyssey will not go up three years from now and six years from now are zero. But guess what? I want to make it as conservative as possible. So I have a nine-year lease on an EXL, and I have a nine-year driving a 2016 Honda Odyssey with leather, which was bought at auction for $21,000. Ready? Fine. At the end of the period, total cost per year for the Honda Odyssey 2016 it's $3,500 versus per year versus $9,600 for the EXL. Total cost, $86,400. Okay? Versus $31,500. $21,000 for the purchase, right? And another... 11,500 for additional repairs. So I have 86,400, 31,500. Okay. Right? I take the difference. $6,100 per year. Starting at age 27. And I drop it into the S&P 500 or a real estate deal. And I'm compounding at 9%. The S&P historically has done better than that. I'm giving you 9%. Right? So I'm just taking the difference. That's all. $6,100 a year. Not a lot of money. At the end, when you're ready to retire, it's a difference of $1.2 million. 
$61,000. Take that $6,100 at 27, put it into the S&P. One day, you'll wake up at 870 and say, I have $1.2 million. You will not even remember what car you drove when you were 27. None of your neighbors will remember. One thing you will know, that you have $1.2 million. Anybody want to sit down with me and I'll show you the math. It's simple. And I only did this from 27 to 36. And I'm only showing you the difference between driving a used minivan and a brand new one. And it's much worse if you factor in wear and tear that you pay at the end of the lease, additional insurance for a more expensive car, and that we all know that leases keep going up. Can you tell me who in his right mind would lease a car when he could drive a perfectly good car? Does it make any sense? I'll tell you. Somebody who has absolutely no concept of money. Somebody who has no concept of the time value of money and that every purchase is a trade-off. It's either going to be this or it's going to be this. Chavid, do you know how many people come to me? A week. They're 60, 62, 67. I don't know, whatever age it is. They have absolutely no money. Zero. How can I retire, they ask me. You can't. How could it be? I'm working so many years. You spent all your money. Is that not obvious? You're left with social security. How could that be? The answer is a series of buying decisions. Either because they convinced themselves that they need it. They never sat down with the councils that we have. Or they believed that another hundred dollars here and there makes absolutely no difference. The reality is, if you live that kind of life, most of you, not all of you, will never have wealth. And if you want menuchas ha-nefesh, as you reach your 40s and 50s, believe me, if you do not have money set aside, and if the next expense is going to throw you through a loop, you will be living paycheck to paycheck, no matter how much money you're earning, just like my friend who came into the office who had expenses of over $3 million a year and had no money saved up because he spent every penny. And trust me, we see this story all the time. We saw this in Mesila. We see it in Living Smarter Jewish. If you have a number in mind that you believe at that point you're going to start saving, I can assure you it's not true. If you're earning 100 and when you're in 200, you're not going to save. When you're in 400, you're not going to save. If you're not saving right now, if you don't have an IRA, if you're not putting money away, if you're not saying no to every single thing that everybody else is saying yes to, you will not have money one day unless Hashem gives you a tremendous windfall. But the reality is we cannot count on that. So let me give you some pointers or hard, fast rules that you should walk away with. And to Rabbi Gwertzman's point, the Pasuk says, until you put something to a chayfetz, it means nothing. You have to make decisions. If you walk out of this room and, like you said, nice inspirational speech, tomorrow morning's coffee, it's all gone. You have to make decisions. And you're getting advice from somebody who helps billionaires make decisions when it comes to finance. 
Decision number one. Avoid debt at all costs. Bad debt. There's good debt and there's bad debt. Buying a house and taking a mortgage you can afford is good debt. A house is an asset. It will go up over time. You're amortizing. You're forcing yourself to save. Even at 8%. Houses are good investments. You own something. Credit card debt is terrible. Car leases are terrible. Yes, that's debt. You owe the bank that money for the three years that you have the car. I'm going to read you the words of Reb Chaim Zetzal in Orchus Yosher, Shar Hakina. I suggest you go home and learn it with your wife. I'm translating into English. There are many people in our generation, that live without a cheshben. Everything they see by others they must have. In doing so, they fall into debt and their end is bitter. All this because they didn't manage their affairs diligently. This is Rukhain, not me. Only spending, by only spending money they have. Debt, by virtue, means you do not spend money you have. You spend tomorrow's money. If you keep spending tomorrow's money, when will you ever have money? We should run from debt like we run from fire. The words of Reb Chaim Zatzal. The Ram says in Mar Nevuchim, there's three kinds of calamities that fall a person. One, Nebuch, they're born, they have a disease, they have a, some kind of impairment. Two, acts of aggression like war, hatred, bigotry. The Ramam says that both those categories pale in comparison to the third category. The third category, says the Rambam, is the anxiety and the pressure and the depression that we bring upon ourselves by living above our means. By seeing something that somebody else has and chasing after excesses and indulgences. If you're buying stuff with debt, you're making a very big mistake. Stuff is something that has absolutely no value or has diminishing value from the moment you walk out of the store with it. As a financial advisor, I train my clients to buy assets, not stuff. A house is an asset. Real estate is an asset. A stock portfolio is an asset. Expensive clothes and cars. You ever go onto eBay? You ever see what a five or eight year old Bentley is worth? Or a 10-year-old Bentley? My name just bought himself a Bentley convertible. I remember when that car was $160,000. He bought it for $7,500 in an auction. That is called a depreciating asset. Did you ever see a house that's 30 years old that the guy paid $30,000 for and today it's worth $4,000? Have you ever seen that house? House in Borough Park. I remember my Zayda bought this house for $60,000. That was for 40 years ago. It's a 40-year-old house, and now it's only worth $1,200. You know that house? Doesn't exist, right? Now it's worth $6 million. Chevra, 
just forget everything I said. You can't get wealthy if you don't build assets. It's much better to own an apartment in Yerushalayim than it is to have a new minivan in your yard every day, which people don't even notice because everybody else has it too. Two, never make a buying decision based on what anybody else will think. Ever. It's the worst thing you could do. If you're thinking about getting something because somebody else will think something about you or won't think something about you, you're making a mistake. And I'll give you a little secret. Nobody else has time to think about you. They don't. They're all too busy thinking about what other people are thinking about them. Get out of that. It's immature. It's crazy. Three. We need a lot less than we think. If you expand and ever expand your definition of things that you need and that you can't live without. I had a kid sitting in my house a few weeks ago. His Rashid asked him to come speak to me. His entire class is going to Eretz Yisrael. Entire class. They're going to learn in this beautiful Svarah Yeshiva that I happen to know. I've been there a few times. He's the only kid in his class that can't go. Why can't he go? He needs certain foods. He listed them, three foods. And these three foods, he can't get the same way he has them in America. And his parents told him, if you're going to Eretz Yisrael, you have to go without these. We're not gonna ship them to you every week. We're not gonna, the parents are normal people. Lomaisa, the kid did not go to Eretz Yisrael. Could you imagine? The rest of his life is dictated by the fact that he must have this and this food. We all have these things that we have decided we need. We need. It can't be otherwise. And do we challenge ourselves? Really? If the world went to where it was 50, 60, 80 years ago, would we still need this stuff? I mean, really, the day we should not wake us up now? I was an ancestor when all this happened. You know what you needed? You needed a bombshell fall on your head. My clients are even afraid to talk to me about their money right now because they're so broken. They say, I-, I know this is so trivial. I almost don't want to talk about my money. Yes, it's possible for the Abish to create a world where everything in minutes becomes perspective. Do I really need this? Am I mortgaging my future because I've decided this is what I must have? I know people go every single morning to a certain bakery two blocks away from me and spend $6 or more on a coffee and a Danish. And they tell me they cannot get through the day without it. $6 a day. To me, I already have a spreadsheet built in my head of what I could be doing with that money compounding. We're talking about, we're talking about the difference between retiring with no mortgage on your house and a second home or having a, a waist size like this and teeth that rotted 20 years ago from all the sugar they put in, not to mention cholesterol and everything else, but I've decided I need it. So what am I going to sit with the guy and tell him? One guy says to me, what, I want to enjoy life. I, want to enjoy, I also want to enjoy life. I enjoy life when I look at my bank statement. 
I enjoy life in knowing that I can support my children in Kailu. I, I enjoy life that I know I can write a check to Tzedakah. I enjoy life because I know I have dears in Israel. You enjoy life with a Danish because hey, what am I supposed to tell you? You don't know what enjoyment means, so I'm going to start arguing with you. I'm serious. Take a good look at yourself and say, do I really need this? Do I really need this? Is there something better that perhaps I could trade this money for? Stop rationalizing for overspending. A four-year-old minivan will not leave you stranded in a bad neighborhood and get you killed. I hear all these mishigas and, oh, I will never drive a car out of warranty. You never know what could happen. Right? Four years, five years. You know how long a Honda Odyssey lasts? I have a Chavi, it's two Honda Odysseys. They were Mr. Shellock's time. Cost a few thousand miles a year, whatever. They keep going, they keep going. 200,000 miles. When I got married, I had a car with 180,000 miles on it. I drove it till it was 240,000 miles and I sold it for $8,000. Wow, come on, seriously. You think your kids are going to have to go to therapy one day if they don't all match? I've never heard a child come to me and say, I have to go to therapy because my, my parents, I grew up and my, I didn't match my sisters or I didn't get the latest outfit. But we convince ourselves, we have all these rationalizations of why. And I'll tell you a little secret. You could do perfectly good shaduchim if you don't live in a 6,000 square foot house. And I'll tell you another thing, you'll do better shaduchim because the people that want to see what kind of house you live in are not the people you want to be mishadich with. Should I tell them the story about the shatran? When I did my first shidduch, I was looking for a bentai. Rachshem, I got one. So the shatran calls me up and says, proposes a shidduch. I said, beautiful. Sounds interesting. They want 100% support. I said, okay. Not a problem. I'm looking to support an Aiden. Okay. A couple of days, they call me back. <coughs> They're looking into your daughter. It sounds very good. Everything's very good. And they want to make sure that you understand that they want 100% support. So we went through this already, and the answer is yes. I'm going to give 100% support. Finally, they call me back, and they say, they're ready to go ahead, but they want it to be absolutely, positively clear that they want 100% support. So I said to Shadon, listen, this, this is the third time. Either you tell me what's going on or I'm going to hang up the phone. Shadon so, <laughs> says, I feel so uncomfortable, but what happened was they drove by your house. And I, I say this, but you don't look like, you know, house doesn't look like the kind of person that could give 100% support. I said, Thank you. Let me just put you on hold because I want to make my wife's day by telling her that. And then I'm going to come back and I'm going to tell you that I'm no longer interested in the shidduch because anybody that drove by my house to see if I can give support is not the kind of person I want to be mishadich with. And that was the end of the shidduch. I did my first shidduch for the chasana. They already owned their dear in Yisrael, Baruch Hashem. It's been 11 years. They're getting 100% support. I did a shidduch without a house, with white pillars and a green door, with somebody I would have never dreamed I could be mishadach with. And guess what? 
If I had the house with the green doors and the pillar, I would have never gotten the shilich adat. I would have gotten somebody who just wants somebody with a house with pillars and a green door. So all these rationalizations of, I have to put up a certain image because otherwise this won't happen, that won't happen. You know how many people in my industry will argue? If you don't drive something stunning, gorgeous, unbelievable up to a driveway, no one's going to give you their money. You know how many people have told this to me? Oh, I'm in an industry where I have to make a very big impression. So that's why I drive my Escalade ESV. Is that the longest one they have? That's the size of a tractor trailer? Yeah, yeah. I just got driven one in Uber. I called an Uber and there was no Ubers except the, like, the black car one. It was the same price. I'm like, for 76 bucks, he's taking me home. I'm telling you, I could have stretched out my hands and my feet and I wanted to touch the chair behind me. I'm like, who needs a car like this? I have no idea. But if I don't pull up into such a car, with such a car into a sprawling mansion in West Hartford, Connecticut, I have a client who has a $64 million mansion. Yeah? Could you see the logical argument that I should be driving up in something that blows your brains out because otherwise he won't give me his $40 million to manage? Does, that mean, does it sound like a rational argument? Everybody in my industry does it. I drive a 2019 MDX that I bought off the lease. It has 33,000 miles on it. I probably will drive it for the next five years and I don't give a flip. And guess what? I'll pull up into a billionaire's driveway and I'll walk out with his account document signed and it's all baloney. Because all people do is rationalize. I need to do this because otherwise blank, good. I just told you a minute ago, don't ever make a decision based on a false rationalization of what other people think. Five, every purchase adds up. Every purchase is a trade-off. It's this now or something much bigger later, period. I either retire with three, four million dollars in an IRA or I retire with very little and I'm gonna spend the rest of my life worrying. And believe me, that's a lot more satisfying than whatever it is that you are going to buy right now unless you absolutely need it. Be very, very careful before upgrading your lifestyle in any way, shape, or form. When I was sitting in that office with this guy, I absolutely could have lived with $200,000 by Harkhava. I knew it. I knew it. I wasn't living on $200,000, because I was giving much more tzedakah and I had more money than that. But I knew that my lifestyle, my lifestyle, anybody that knows me, you can ask people, has not changed one iota in the last 15 years. Not one iota. I didn't start flying anything different. I didn't start driving anything different. I did minor cosmetic changes to my house. To my house. Nothing outwardly has changed. Nobody knows what's going on inside of my financial life, except people who know what goes on inside of the world of of Wall Street. Because I'm afraid to upgrade, because I've seen the pain and the suffering of a downgrade. And then you can't downgrade, because you've created this image of yourself. Do you know how many people right now are struggling to put bread on the table, but they still live in mansions? You know how many people in my neighborhood live in $6 million mansions with $4 million mortgages 
And some of them had lines of credit because you can't get a $4 million mortgage. So they have a $1 million, $2 million line of credit and they're choking because their interest rates went from three to nine. And they mamish don't have money. But hourly, oh, they upgraded and then they upgraded. And they, it's very hard to downgrade. Be very, very careful. When you get used to something, it's almost impossible to get unused to it. The Gemara says that we have to give the Gavir what he got used to because otherwise he's Mamash Rachmana's case. So you should be petrified of upgrading and look for ways to stop or downgrade and have more money for a rainy day, for an unexpected expense and to make sure that you're saving money for chasanis and bar mitzvahs and other things which you will make in a rational way. Last, you have to have a financial rebbe. Spending decisions, money decisions, financial decisions are fraught with emotion. Pressure. Sometimes it's the wife wants it, sometimes it's the husband that wants it, sometimes it's both of them that want it. Same way you have a Rebbe in your Shulchan Aruch and your Adrarach Achayim. You need to have a coach. You need to have somebody who you can call up. I get calls all the time from people in my neighborhood who say, I have option A, I have option B. Tell me what I should do. This mortgage, that mortgage, should I buy this house, should I buy that house? Why wouldn't you ask somebody? Why wouldn't you check whether or not you're doing the right thing? Somebody came to me, a younger man. He had this grandiose idea. He's going to slap three floors on top of his house in Borough Park. He's going to rent them out. He's going to make X amount of income. He had all cheshmed out, right? Except he didn't come to me before. He came to me after. He came to me after when there was 40% overruns on the construction. His next door neighbor sued him. The job ran over a year and a half in time. And then, just when all that was done, interest rates went flying up, and he has a million, $1.2 million on a line of credit. And he probably will have to sell his house and move away. Because the whole thing came crashing down. So he comes to me. And I say to him, why are you coming to me now? Why don't you come to me two years ago with the plan? What am I supposed to do for you now? If you would have showed me the plan two years ago, I would ask you a simple question. What happens if interest rates go up? You know the guys who do real estate, you know? Cash on cash, 9%, 10%, 11%, da, 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 da. What happens if interest rates go up? <gasps> what? Interest rates don't go up, they never go up. What do you mean, they've been like this forever? Really, they haven't been like this forever. In fact, they should never be like this. What will you do if interest rates go up? Don't ask me these questions, okay? I don't want to hear. I'll tiftach satan. What happens if you don't find a tenant? What happens if it takes longer than you thought? See, in, in, in Wall Street, to be a good analyst, you have to stress test every assumption. What happens if, what happens if, this is what we do all day. What will happen to this portfolio if? What would happen to this portfolio if? But when you make a financial decision to do something, you're optimistic. Please don't be so pessimistic, Rabbi Horowitz. Be optimistic. My husband will keep getting raises every year. My children will never need braces or chasrashal in my washing machine should break. It's going to be perfect forever. But what's if it's not? Don't say that. 
So I said to the guy, what am I supposed to do for you now? He didn't come to me two or three years ago when I would have asked you what if, what if, what if, what if. People do come to me and I ask them all those questions and they go back and they revise the plan and they don't put three stories on their house so they don't take a lot of credit. They borrow money from relatives at a fixed rate of zero. That's the best loan. But whatever it is, if you don't have a Rebbe, if you don't have a coach, it's not possible sitting where you are today unless you studied finance and you, you're doing this all day not to make financial decisions that are going to be wrong. So that's why we're here tonight. Because there's a ton of hope for the people in this room. You do not have to fall into despair and chayvis and anxiety and pressure like unfortunately a lot of people out there are right now. And you can have the other kind of life. You just need information and need hadracha. And you need to live life responsibly and prudently. As Reb Chaim says, <coughs> abhorring debt, living within your means and not chasing after indulgences. I hope this was helpful. Thank you, Rabbi Horowitz. If I could just ask Nailam, I know it's late. Just for one or two more minutes of your time, we have Rabbi Kalish, who is one of the volunteers for LSJ, as a financial planner, which we're asking Nailam to please sign up in the back. We'll just give us a two minutes overview of what financial planning looks like. If I could ask Nailam to stay for about two minutes. Uh, my name is Yehuda Kalish. I live over here in Lakewood, in Rangeree. I've been coaching for eight years. I just want to give you guys a little bit of an idea of what goes on. We're not here to tell you how to live. We're here just to give you an idea of what your dreams are. Meaning is, there are many different people who have different goals, different dreams. So we want to try to get you to realize what you want, to see how you can get there. It's not about looking at your friend, not about looking at your neighbor. And when you sit down together and you don't have your peer pressure around, it's just you and your wife sitting down with a coach, you can actually come up with a plan and hopefully make that work for you. So take advantage, sign up, hopefully we'll be able to help you out, give you a plan that will work for you guys.